Aren't waiting rooms fun? Nope. I think the most common question in a doctor's office waiting room is what? How much longer is this going to be? No offense, Clark, but <laughs> yours too. <laughs> you know, if you find yourself maybe in a conflict at work or a stressful financial fin- a situation or maybe even a health issue, you'll find yourself asking, how much longer is this going to be part of my life? How much longer do I have to deal with this issue? The question of how much longer has also been asked in the Bible. Many different biblical characters ask this question of God. One that we see it frequently is in the book of Psalms. We're not going to be in Psalms today. We're going to be in Revelation, so don't turn there. But David asked this question. One example is in Psalm 74.10. David asked a question that I think applies to even the things we see going on in the world today. He said, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? This question of how long is not a new question. It's been asked for as long as there's been time. And today's sermon is titled, How Much Longer? And we'll be in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17. Hopefully that question will not apply to the sermon itself. Uh, but that is the title of the sermon today. How much longer? will be Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17. Let's read 9, 10, and 11. Let's read those first few verses to get right into it. And then we'll begin breaking it down. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So in verse 9, Jesus by name is not mentioned, but from the previous verses, we know that he's the one who has the scroll and he is the one who is opening the seals. And the scroll with the seven seals was in the Father's hand. Remember, it was given to Jesus. And as he opens these seals, we see the cycles of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And it was only Jesus. Jesus alone was found worthy to open the scroll. Jesus alone was found worthy to judge the creation. But when the fifth scroll is open, what do we see? We see those who had died for their testimony. Those who had held to the word of God unto death. The Greek word that's translated here as testimony is a Greek word martyrium. And it's where we get our English word martyr from. At its base, it simply means to give testimony or to witness to something. And where did John see the martyrs in Revelation 6? Where does it say that they were? They're under the altar. It's kind of an odd place. But in Leviticus chapter 4, when Moses was receiving the instructions for the different sacrifices that were to be given, and he received the instructions for the sin offering, the priest was to take a bull and to sacrifice that bull, and the, the blood of that bull was sacrificed in, or it was sprinkled in different places, 
including the, the Holy of Holies, but the remaining part of the blood was poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. So again, I think this is Old Testament imagery that we have to understand to understand the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 6, 9, as this fifth seal is opened, John sees not another judgment like the other seals, but he sees this group of people, and they're in heaven, and they have a specific question that they are asking God himself. They've died for their faith, and they're under the altar in heaven. And what's their question? Look at verse 10 again. It reads, and they cried with what? A loud voice. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they cry with a loud voice, it says. This is an intense moment in heaven. They begin by declaring what? God, you're holy and you're true. In other words, there's nothing about their death that they are ascribing God injustice with. They're saying, God, you are holy and true, but how long till you make it right? How long till you avenge our blood that has been spilt? Does this seem kind of like an odd question to ask in heaven? I don't know. At first glance, it might. I mean, they died for their faith in Jesus. They died for their faith in God. They're holding to the word of God. They're holding to their testimony to the end. They die, and, and they're asking God, okay, how much longer till you avenge that? They want to know what God's going to do and when he's going to do it. They know he'll avenge it. They're wondering when. I think the key to understanding Revelation 6.10, because it's really kind of an odd question, is to understand the word avenge. The souls under the altar are a group of people that are asking not, well, they're, let me explain it more in just a second. They're demanding vengeance against their enemies, but not like, this angry group of people crying out saying, they did that to us and, and we're mad at them and we want you to repay them. What they're saying is, God, we died unjustly. We know that you have seen this injustice. And so we know that you're holy and true and you're a just God. So we, we have confidence in you, but we just want to know, when are you going to make this right? When are you going to vindicate our blood that was spilled in your name? And that's where you have to understand what they're asking. To avenge or to vindicate something is to right a wrong. We looked at it kind of at the end of the sermon last week about how we're awaiting the king to come and set his world back in order. And that's at the heart of what they're asking. They're saying, God, when are you going to bring justice to this situation that is unjust? So that's at the heart of their cry now, why would they even have the right, or would they think they have the right, to ask a question like that of God? Well, as we read in our scripture reading earlier today, Jesus actually promised that this would happen. Look one more time, now that you have Revelation kind of in the background here. Look one more time at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. This is Jesus. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Again, Jesus does not want us to lose heart. What is he saying is um, kind of the kryptonite, so to say, to losing heart. What will help us to defeat uh, losing heart, to keep us from that? Well, it's prayer is what Jesus is saying. There must be something to that. And he tells this parable to help us understand it. He says, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. 
Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. She wanted justice. She wanted what was right. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, that I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I'll avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So the judge is saying, this lady is wearing me slap out. And I don't really care that much about justice, nor do I fear God, but because she is wearing me out, I am going to take up her case and I'm going to get her justice so I can get some sleep. Then Jesus says, look, if that unjust judge will do that, then, look at verse 6. Then the uh, Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect? He's saying, if this unjust judge will do this, will God not so much more avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Let's get justice for them, is what he's saying. Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? He said, there is coming a day of justice. But when that day comes and when the Son of Man appears, will we be found faithful? Will we be found believing? Will we be found trusting him for that day he has promised? Did you hear what Jesus said? He's promised that he's going to do this. So that's why these souls are crying out. They know that God is a God of justice, and the heart of their cry is, when are you going to make the wrongs right? So look at Revelation 6, 11, their response. Verse 11 again, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So first they're given a what? A white robe. It seems kind of random. But it's a symbol of purity and of glory. This is sort of like a, a pledge that God is giving them saying, look, I know you're waiting. It's going to come. And God is giving them as a pledge that one day they will be avenged. But also, what are they to do while they're waiting for their day of vindication? Again, it's, it's kind of odd. It's kind of different to me. But it makes sense when you think about it a little bit more. They're told to what? To rest. They're already in heaven but God's telling them to rest. Now, to rest here, especially the Greek word that we translate here as rest, it means to be refreshed. It has that idea of being refreshed. And God answers these martyrs' question with what? With kindness. And I think there's something to that. God's saying, I hear you. Here's a pledge that I'm going to do something about it. Now you relax. You sit back here and you be refreshed and you relax and you wait knowing that I am going to avenge your blood. He gave them the robes of an assurance of what was come, and he told them to rest and be refreshed as they waited on that day. But again, when would they be vindicated? Look at verse 11, one more time, the, the back part of it. Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. That's kind of a hard verse. But apparently, God has a plan by which he is going to vindicate all of his martyrs at once. Not one unjust death will be overlooked. But God is going to take the blood of all of his saints and all of the injustice that has been done throughout time or that will be done. And there is going to be a day of reckoning. In fact, if you stay with us as we continue through the book of Revelation, you will see this day. You will see it play out. You will see the answer of Revelation 
6. The question that is asked, you will see it answered later in the book. That brings us to our first point today, though, I think from these verses is this. God's justice comes in God's time. But our sense of justice is often short-sighted. God's saying to them, look, it's going to come. I'm going to avenge you, but I'm going to avenge you along with all your other brothers and sisters that still will be killed in my name. And God had a plan, and God had a purpose in their death, and God has a plan for avenging their death, but it wasn't in their time. And God's justice comes in his time. Do you have an assurance that God is just, that he is right, and that he will set his created world in order? The issue is most likely that our vision, our view of it is simply short-sighted. And that's where we get in trouble. But it reminds me of King David. Remember King David, he was a shepherd boy that God chose to be king over the nation of Israel. That's quite a raise, right? That's quite a promotion. But there was one problem. Saul was the current king. Now, understand this. God promised the throne to David. God promised David the kingdom. And on top of that, Saul had become a terrible king. He was a self-willed, selfish king. He was not doing right. He was rebelling against God. So you have David, a man who loves God, who follows God, who has the kingdom promised to him. And then you have David, the current king, who's a wicked king, who the clock is ticking. His reign is coming to an end. But what is David going to do about it? Well, Saul begins to persecute David. Saul becomes jealous of David. Saul hunts David, and David flees and is on the run for his life. And there was a group of men that were devoted to David, and they're fleeing, and they're hiding literally in caves in the wilderness. That doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem very kingly, does it? God promised David, you're going to rule on the throne, but here he is hiding in a cave. One time Saul came into that cave that David was hiding in, He did not know that David and his mighty men were in that cave. And David had the perfect opportunity to seize the throne. He had the perfect opportunity to kill his enemy. He had the perfect opportunity. He's saying, God's promised me the throne. Here's my enemy. Here's the king. I could just slay him, quit living in caves, and go to the palace. But even though the throne was promised to David, and even though Saul was wicked... David refused, listen, to vindicate himself, and he allowed Saul to go unharmed. David chose to wait on God to do what God had promised he would do, and he refused to get ahead of God's timing. Now, am I advocating some sort of a weak Christianity with no action and just words and waiting and just a pat answer of, well, just wait on God? No. If you read the whole counsel of God, you read the whole Bible, we see we're to take care of the orphans and the widows. And as believers, we are to be about justice because we know the God of righteousness. And so we are to actively be pursuing the things of justice in the world that we live in. But here's the difference. We're not to champion our own cause. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you are suffering injustice... It's not yours to avenge, it's God's. The battle belongs to who? The Lord. So there's a difference here between getting your own vindication 
and taking up the issues of justice for the needy and the helpless and others. Now, if you're in an abusive situation, somewhere where you're being harmed, get out. I'm not advocating that you stay around that. I'm not advocating that you stay somewhere where you get harmed. But Scripture says that God is the one that fights our battles. God is the one that vindicates us. God is the one that takes up our cause. So here's the deal. If I am suffering injustice, I have a choice to make. Do I want to fight my own battle, which I may or may not win, and I could end up with a lot of collateral damage in? Or if I am truly suffering injustice, and I have I've not brought it on myself, so to say. I've not just done something stupid and I'm suffering for it. But if I'm truly suffering injustice, do I take up my own battle? Or I do, do I allow the Lord that wins every battle to step in and fight in my place? You see, there's a great difference there. Are we to be about justice? Yes. Are we to take up our own causes and seek our own vindication? No. We're to understand that there is a just judge And one day he is going to sit on the throne and he is going to render judgment and he is going to make it right. But let's look at the rest of our passage today. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, read this. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain island was removed out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And he said to the mountains and the rocks, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. There's a change. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So in verse 12, the, which seal is open? The sixth seal is open. And the first thing we see is a mighty earthquake. This is, in fact, one of three great earthquakes that shake the earth in Revelation. Uh, the other two are Revelation eleven thirteen and 16, verses 18 through 19. We'll get to those later. But the rest of verses 12 and then verses uh, 13 and 14 describe an event that happens in the sky and it even affects the mountains and the islands. Look how it's described. Look, let's look at the list of things. The sun has turned black. The moon looks red as blood. The stars appear to fall. The sky appears to roll back. And even the islands and the mountains are moved. So what's going on here? Well, if this takes place literally, if those things take place literally as the sixth seal is opened towards the beginning of the uh, tribulation, we understand these are cataclysmic world-ending events. And so if you believe the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls kind of overlap, then that would fit into more of a literal translation because this seems like a world-ending, again, event. But I think that as we happen see happen often in Revelation that this is more figurative where what John is saying he's drawing upon the Old Testament to help us understand the magnitude of what is going to take place in fact this type of imagery is very typical to the Old Testament day of the Lord imagery so I think again it's meant to be more figurative I want to give you three passages about that the first is Isaiah 13 
verses 9 and 10. And we're going to apply this to your life in just a moment. Hang with me. I want you to understand this principle of what's going on here. In Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 10, there's a prophecy about Babylon that's going to be destroyed in a day of the Lord. Listen to this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be darkened, and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Again, figurative language about a day of the Lord where God is going to visit the world in such a way, and he did in the judgment of Babylon. Ezekiel 32, verses 6 through 8, is another example. It was about God's judgment on the land of Egypt. Listen to these verses. Ezekiel 32, 6 through 8. I will also water the land with the flow of your blood. Wow, that gets your attention, all right? Even to the mountains and the riverbeds will be full of you. When I put out your light... I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. And the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord. Again, I think what John's doing with Revelation is he's drawing on this Old Testament day of the Lord imagery to help us to understand the magnitude of what God is doing. But again, if you're still not with me, look at Joel chapter 2. One more passage about the day of the Lord. Joel 2, verses 10 through 11, and then verses 30 through 31. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Then if you skip down to verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. So again, if you go back to Revelation 6 with this Old Testament background, I think what's happening is as the sixth seal is open, there will be a great earthquake, possibly a solar eclipse, Maybe a tornado. There are thunderings and lightnings. There's things like that. There will be such a great storm that will come upon the earth that it will literally shake the mountains and the islands. And we see this imagery going back into the Old Testament. Have you ever gotten woke up in the middle of the night by a loud clap of thunder? Or maybe you've been in a tornado. Maybe you have felt those straight winds that can just shake your house and knock down trees. Or maybe you've been in a boat or a plane going through a storm. It can be a fearful thing, can it? Apparently, God is going to send a storm that is so great when this sixth seal is open, it is going to shake the whole earth. I remember uh, when I was a young single man living in Pilot Point, and it was my first full-time position in ministry. And I worked cattle on the side in order to live in a single wide trailer that was near the church. And it was a cattle workers trailer. It was sketchy. And where I lived was close to uh, the boat ramp by Lake Ray Roberts. And the problem was there was a hill between me and the lake. I was real close to the lake. But what happened was as these storms would kick off, it seemed like the wind from the lake would come over this hill and as it crested the hill, it would just rush down and slam against my house. And again, this was not the sturdiest, the nicest trailer that you've ever seen, far from it. 
And I remember in one of those storms, um, it got pretty, pretty bad. Now, a little bit other background there. I'm not one that's afraid of storms. I remember back in the late 90s where a tornado came through Dallas, and I remember driving down the highway watching the side of a building getting ripped off and been like, wow, that's intense, you know. So storms don't really bother me. I have snowboarded literally in a blizzard. Uh, I have uh, been in a kayak in fishing and heavy rain and winds, you know, kind of doing this thing. Hope I don't flip. So probably not the best thing. I'm not afraid of storms probably to a fault. They don't really bother me. So if I'm getting nervous about a storm, everybody else should be nervous around me. And this was the night where I started getting nervous about this storm. My house was actually shaking. The whole house was moving. And so I remember getting up out of bed, turning on the news, and sitting there waiting to see if a tornado was about to blow me away. I was like, you know, I don't want to go out like this. And it's not funny now. I say this to poke fun of myself now. I can do this. It's not funny now, but here was my prayer. I remember getting up in the night, sitting there watching the news, and this was my prayer. Y'all have seen these people on the news, and I didn't want to be one of these people. I remember sitting there in my chair going, God, Please don't let me be one of those people getting interviewed on the news saying, that tornado flipped over, that nader flipped over my trailer. And I was like, God, I just don't want to be one of those people on the news talking about their trailer getting flipped over by the nader. And, and I prayed and I prayed. And thankfully, my trailer did, get, did not get flipped over by the nader. And we made it through the night. But I tell you what, the force of that wind I mean, I really thought my house was going to get flipped over. Now, we understand a fraction of what nature can do, right? Can you imagine when God, the Father, looks at Jesus, says, Son, open the sixth seal, and that sixth seal is God allowing nature to unleash its wrath, the storms, the lightning, the earthquake, the thunder, it's like God gives the storms an okay to just get nuts. And that's what's going to happen when that sixth seal is open. And look at the people's response in Revelation 6. And the kings of the earth, verse 15, where we left off. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? In other words, the people of the earth are going to realize this is the wrath of God. Specifically, this is the wrath of the Lamb. But why is that important? They know that this is what's going on. They know it's God's wrath, but why is that important? Look, everyone fears. What does it say? The great men, the rich men, the slave, the free. Everyone fears. No one is left standing in pride. Everyone is shaking in their boots. Look again at verses 16 and 17. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So two things from these verses. First, it's sad to realize that when men are faced with the absolute reality of God, because they're recognizing God, even when they're faced with his reality, they would rather die or curse him or do whatever they've got to do than stay in their rebellion 
than they would repent, believe, and obey him. There are some people that it does not matter what God does in their life, they will not turn to him. This reminds me of, of Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. What did they do when they sinned and they were convicted of their sin? They immediately what? Hid. They hid themselves. There will be people that will hate you because you are living for Jesus. And by the life you live, you are convicting them. And they don't like it. And so instead of dealing with their own sin, it's easier just for them to turn on you. You see, sin is deceptive. And we'll see in other places in Revelation, there are other places where people are faced with the reality of God, but they would rather curse God or die than actually turn and believe. But if we're honest enough with ourselves, I think we all have foolish moments where we tell God no when what he is doing doesn't fit our schedule or our liking or our plans. God, this is not life according to how I had planned you're not being good. You're not being just. You're not doing what a good God should do. We treat God like he's a lap dog instead of the king of the universe. But second, note the wrath of the lamb that's mentioned in verses 16 and 17. I mean, that's a change. We went from the lamb who was slain to now the wrath of the lamb. It's a great contrast to what we've seen at this point. The lamb's the one who was slain. He's the one that prevailed. He's the one that's Worthy, He's bought us unto God. He's purchased us. But now the wrath of the Lamb. And what do the people say? Who is able to what? To stand. That brings us to our second final point today is this. When God's justice arrives, no one will be able to stop it. And listen, we've been talking about this in Revelation. I think we need to continue to repeat it. When God's justice arrives, no one will be able to stop it. I think there are a lot of people that live their life thinking, I'll get right with God tomorrow. My friends, tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. Your next breath is not guaranteed to you. You need to get it right now. If you have breath now, that is God's grace for you to get right now. You may not have breath in the next few moments. And when God's justice arrives, you're not going to be able to stop it. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no get out of jail free cards. There's no mulligans. He's already been giving us grace after grace, day after day. Let me put it to you this way. How foolish would it be for us to go walk out and stand in front of a tornado and see those tornadic winds just shredding trees and see the wind throwing things? And how foolish would it be for us to go and stand in front of a tornado and just go, stop it, quit that? be foolish right how many of you when you hear about a volcano that's about to erupt get on the first flight that takes you to that volcano you climb up the side of that mountain you look down into the magnum that's about to blow up and the lava that's about to burn everything how many of you just go right up to that volcano and you go hush now you quit that we do that all the time don't we no we realize it's foolish don't we what about you when a hailstorm, a good old East Texas hailstorm comes and you're hearing your car getting dented up and your roof getting dented up, do you just walk right outside to those softball-sized hails and you're like, would you just stop? We don't do that, do we? We realize how foolish it would be to try to just tell nature to do that. How much more foolish of it is for us to think that when God says, son, it's time to judge the world, there's anything less that's going to happen. You cannot stop the justice of God. 
But there is a God, his name is Jesus, who has stilled the storms in the past. Jesus stood up and said, storm, be still and be quiet, and it obeyed him. And what he is looking for is people that will recognize his lordship and obey him now and know him now and escape the wrath that is to come. Now, look, I'm not saying don't go to God with your frustrations. God's big enough to handle you. You go and talk to him about whatever. But what I'm saying is we need to recognize that there is a God and we are not him. And to surrender to his lordship. So where does that leave us this morning? Where does that leave us? Well, a couple things. First, the lamb came to die for the sins of the world. He's already paid the penalty for our sins. He's called us to repent and believe, to trust him, to go his way. And there's coming a day when he's going to return. So we need to, if that seems a little heavy to you, that's probably good. The fact that the judge is going to return one day should probably sit a little heavy on your shoulders. To go, look, I want to be ready when Jesus returns. To have some anticipation as well. To realize, look, I have been made righteous and clean by the blood of the lamb. And so I can be ready when he returns. But to within that same breath said, oh God, help me to be ready when you return. There's this great duality for the Christian between an anticipation, I can't wait for Jesus to return, and yet the weight of it to say, Lord Jesus, may I be found ready when you do. And so for some of us, that may mean that we need to quit trying to vindicate ourselves and really, truly put our problems in God's hands. For others, maybe some of you, you've been putting that problem, that trouble in God's hands over and over and over again, and it just doesn't seem to get any better. Look, remember, your time is not God's time. And remember what God said to the souls under the throne. Rest. Be refreshed in me. Look, wait on God's time. Be encouraged. God has not forgotten you. For others, you're maybe waiting to trust God till you get some more things figured out, some answers from him. Now, look, it is good to know why you believe what you believe, but if you're waiting to really believe in God until you have it all figured out, you are revealing that your trust is not in God, it is in your own intellect and ability. And that will not save you when the judge returns. And so wherever we're found today, I think it is a very healthy thing to realize that when that seal is open, that when the judgment begins, that when Christ returns, that's it, it's done. And to live our lives with that understanding that that could be at any moment. And may God's grace, Lord Jesus, may I be found ready when you return. Would you please stand with me? If you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to close our service with two invitations. The first invitation is this. If God is drawing you today, and I believe that if you're here that's probably good odds that God is drawing you. You've heard the gospel proclaim that there is a God who loves you and he has given his son for you. And Jesus has not only died in place for your sins, in your place, the death that you owe God, but he's risen from the grave. He has ascended to heaven. He's given the promise that whoever turns, if we turn from our way and believe upon Jesus, we will be saved. And so today, maybe that's you. Maybe you realize, and maybe you've been putting it off because you're worried about what people will think. Maybe it's time for you to quit living your life based on what other people think and for you to do business with God. If God's drawing you today, don't delay. Your next breath is not guaranteed.
But for many of us as believers, I think as we go through the book of Revelation, it's just a good heart check to continuously be going, am I living in light of his return? That he could really return at any moment. And I want to be found ready. Do not put off to tomorrow what God is calling you to do today. Be obedient to him today. In this moment, right now, maybe some of you, you just need to take a moment to pray and say, Lord, I've been telling you no in this area, and I'm telling you yes now. And as I leave this place, here's how things are going to be different. And then by his grace, you trust him with the results. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to stand down front. And this is our time of response, a time for you to respond to God. We're going to sing a song of response, a very fitting song. I think in light of what's going on in our world this weekend and this scripture, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, don't delay. You come down. You let me kneel down right here and pray with you, and you give your life to Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you are for us. You're not against us. And there is coming a day where you are going to avenge the blood of your saints. You are a God of justice and a God of love and grace and mercy. And so through the cross, there is forgiveness because the debt has been paid. And if there is one here today that has not yet trusted in you for the forgiveness of sins, may they put their faith in you and be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.